Welcome to the Altus Insights podcast series with Ray and Marlin, hosted by me, Avi. This podcast will cover monthly market updates and construction cost impacts across major markets in Canada. Welcome to episode four of Altus Insights podcast. Today, we're going to talk about affordability, mainly affordability crisis in Canada, which uh, has been a really big topic for the last few years. And every year, it seems to be a growing concern. So here with me, we have Ray Wong and Marlon Bray, our two experts on the market and the industry. And uh, I'll just jump into a few questions that I know a lot of you are looking for answers for. So the first question is, what are the main causes for the unaffordability crisis that we're seeing in some of the major markets in Canada? Ray, maybe you can address uh, the demand side of things, and then Marlon, you can discuss more of the government side and costs. Great. Thanks, Avi. Yeah, the thing is, with this housing affordability crisis, it's not just you know the past few years, but you know it's this is this has been going on across Canada uh, for twenty or thirty years. And um, it's it's really with the pandemic has really exacerbated the the the, the problem. It's always been a problem in the in the major markets, but now we're starting to see uh, a bit of an issue in some of the secondary and tertiary markets because of that push out with the change in demographics, and we're going to see this anyways. Looking for sort of more space or bigger bang for for um, for the buck. And from an inventory level, it's it's um, the the developers and 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 builders that are having challenges with um, uh, balancing the the cost to build and as well as to um, to to look at um, at a proper return and as well as to build um, sort of quality uh, housing. So it's a combination of of different things impacting the marketplace, but more recently with the, with the low interest rates and as well as um, uh, potential more, uh, further increases in the next um, 12 to 18 months. And we're also going to see the resumption of immigration. So it's an issue that is not, um, the, well, it's definitely not going away, but it's an issue that we've been dealing with um, for a number of years, not just the last last few years, as contributing to the to the the problem right now with affordable housing. But again, it's a lot more exasperated now, just because of where we are with with the market and overall pricing. Thanks, Ray. Marlon. So this is where I drag my little soapbox over slowly but surely. I mean. Basically, the way I look at it in housing affordability, place your head between your knees, adopt the brace position, it's going to get worse in the short term. And it's not going to get significantly better, especially in the new construction side and affordability in general. I mean, if we want to do a real easy example, look at Toronto and condos. Current rate of cost escalation means that a condo price has to go up $50, $70 a square foot just to accommodate escalation. Throwing the inclusionary zoning that's coming up soon, there's another $50 a square foot. Throwing TSG, ESG, all great ideas, 10 to $20 a square foot. Throwing tanking, plus delays and approvals, plus, 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 plus. It never ends. So we have a significant housing. So we, although we have significant housing constriction and starts, that's despite the bureaucratic hell that's been created, not because of the enabling policies that we actually need. So a major challenge on affordable in housing is it, it tends to be an emotional topic, which is why a lot of people struggle to have the discussion on it. And most people actually care about it. So it's complex. There isn't a singular cause. There isn't a singular time it started. Like Ray said, it's been going on for a while. There isn't a single answer or solution. 
I mean, the only person that does well out of uh, housing affordability is the NIMBY. I mean, they get to make sure that the rest of the regular mortals don't get on the housing ladder. They like inclusionary zoning because it's, hey, kids, go eat cake. Just don't do it in my neighborhood. And it's all about luck and timing on the housing side. I mean, Avi, you spoke about this with us before, trying to buy now versus 20 years ago, 10 years ago. It's a bit of a complete nightmare. So basically, everyone trying to buy a house now is already up the creek without a paddle. What about my daughter who's 15? It's even worse. And I think a lot of the problems on the supply side, they come from the um, partisanship, the, the obsessiveness. It's all one camp or another. There's no give or take. One side cries, I need more supply. The other side decries all new construction. A group that wants to blame foreigners, another one that says developers, people of a second home, developers make too much money. And each side's manipulating stats to say what they want. And the problem with stats is the famous lie, lies, damn lies, and statistics. So at all us, we have access to a lot of information. And I believe there's a supply side issue. I think Ray would agree there's a supply side issue. And there's a significant lack of affordable housing. And the solution to me is collaboration. It's collaboration with the private sector. It's trying to found some trust and belief on trying to get to the right place where everyone can get a house, either it's rental or affordable. And this adversarial um, attitude predominantly, I think, is fueled by the municipal, municipal level. It's just not working. There's an imbalance to the demand. And again, people always like the podcast because they said they like to hear some of the stats. But BMO came out the other week and said part of the housing problem is the obsessiveness with increased house prices. Um, even with people no intention to move, we all know how many people look at the MLS app or House Sigma. I mean, it's like house porn. They're addicted, checking every day. How much did the neighbor get for the house? What did the house around the corner sell for? Um, we know with Colin, we make fun of him trying to keep up with the Joneses and move to Bennington Heights. That's his big dream. So, and everyone gets caught up with it. So, how much is housing and demand out of housing supply and demand out of balance? Um, BMO recently said not overly. Task Force in Ontario said one and a half million in Ontario over 10 years. Scotiabank says 650,000 to get to the G7 average in Ontario, 120,000 in Alberta. Um, we know Canada's lagging behind everyone else. CIBC's just said population growth is outstripping any projections by 45,000 to 50,000 per annum since the last census. Uh, Spark Prosperity Institute came out a million people. Um, so leading experts are somewhere between zero and one and a half million. So we just lack good data in Canada versus other country, which makes it harder to manage, especially as we have three levels of government, basically doing the opposite each other and blaming each other with equal measure. So when I go around to who's the problem, to a degree, it's the politicians, it's municipalities, it's the councillors are all partially responsible for where we are today. The time it takes for approval, ever-changing playing field, changing rules, levies, carbon taxes, whatever the, is the flavour of the day to get re-elected. New construction house prices increase relative to cost pressures. It's something that seems to get missed massively by the market. Developers do not jack up prices to make more money. A condo today is generally making a fairly similar return to where it was in 2016. Uh, and that's for the developer, even with those significant revenue increases we've seen. So costs are out of control. That's hard cost, soft cost, um, government levies, land, and each increase basically ends up in the selling price. Um, the housing system in Canada is pretty much fundamentally broken. There's an attempt to correct course, but it's like this endless hamster wheel. Hamster wheel, sorry. So I don't know. Maybe the, the federal plan to reduce the carbon is let's all live in tents. Maybe this is the whole cunning plan. We just won't build enough houses and we can reduce our carbon footprint by not having houses to live in. You know, Marlon, you know, we're, we're talking about properties for sale, but we also have to look at... Um, the multifamily sector, where we've also seen increase in rents just because of, and that's moved up with, in, in conjunction with the, the higher home prices. Uh, sometimes people don't have a choice 
but to rent and they, they can't afford to buy. But And that's a bit of a challenge we're dealing with in Canada as well, that do we really, does everyone really need to um, buy or own a property? And uh, can can there be a shift to be a little bit more acceptable to rather than uh, rent uh, than, than buy? And again, we've seen m- most of the, the, the multifamily um, <coughs> um, housing stock is in Montreal and whether or not we shift that area. But we're also having affordability issues there with one, increasing rents and not enough um, purpose-built rentals, which is slowly changing, but not quick enough. So I think with this whole affordability thing that we have to look at the the rental as well as the properties for sale. No, I agree completely. And then, Abby, we'll throw it back to you for the next question because I think we've derailed you a little. Yeah, you answered a couple of questions in that one question, but... Ray, going back to what you said, it actually really resonates with me. And I did uh, I, I did speak to Ray and Marlon about this last week. I've been house hunting with my husband and we've put in offers now on probably seven different houses, all of which ended up going for half a million dollars more than the ask, asking price, which let me tell you was already quite high. And it's, it's really a crazy time. I remember when I was a kid and people had a million dollar house, it was like this big deal. And now the average low rise home is $1.8, $1.9 million in the GTA. So it seems like it's becoming increasingly difficult to get into the market. And if you are already in the market, you've probably made some some good returns on your, on your assets. But for those who have not yet gone into the market, it is a very challenging time. I know in the GTA, houses went up by 30% uh, February 2022 compared to 2021. So there is this pressure and this rush to buy now because we're scared the prices are going to just keep going up. But it is a very challenging market, and we see that Montreal and Vancouver are also becoming increasingly um, more unaffordable. So based on all these stats that we're seeing and based on the major markets becoming so expensive so fast and really having this supply issue, what do you guys think would be a simple solution to solve this, this crisis? I don't know if there is a simple solution, but what would you what would you recommend as a government policy? What kind of things do you think could help improve supply or help put some downward pressure and stop this trend from increasing so rapidly? I'll go first. So I think for the government, basically they take the largest return on housing. And that sounds a little odd looking at government return on housing. But if you look between levies and HST, look at a new condo, it's between 20 and 25% of the cost. So that's way more than the developer's profit actually makes. And what we and the developer basically has to put the slow approvals, reduced density to try and keep the neighbor happy while the government takes a huge cut of the pie. So think about that. You said a million dollars a moment ago for, say, a condo, not even a house. Fees and levies are going to be $250,000 on that. If you're an average wage earner in Canada, A, how do you afford a million dollar home? B, that's like 10 to 20 years of income tax in one hit that the government wants you to finance over 25 years with a bank. Seems like a completely illogical way of curing housing affordability, taxes to death from both ends, both on the income, and then when we go buy something. I suppose in a world where budgets magically balance themselves, someone else always suffers to do that. Because I can tell you the average person's budget doesn't magically balance. And if I had a construction project that comes in 30, 40, 50% over budget, I can't just shrug my shoulders, go on the government, it's not my money, and continue. And um, there's been discussions about different construction approaches. I was on the um, the recent ResCon um, conference that they had about housing, and they did touch on a couple of those. So different construction approaches, they're not going to save the day on a huge scale, but on a smaller scale, they're definitely going to help. Prefabrication can help. It's a little more expensive right now, but it's fast, it's quick, it's good for remote areas. 
CLT Mass Timber, I, I love that stuff. And we saw in the, the new sort of act that has been proposed in Ontario, part of that with the three to four story homes, those infilled homes in the uh, more homes for everyone. That's where CLT really fits in. But the problem we have is we're in the whole hundreds of thousands of homes. We're not in the whole tens of thousands. Population growth is going to be 2 million over the next five years, which I think uh, Ray touched on earlier. Over a million of those are coming to the GTA. It could be a million and a half over five years. They need somewhere to live in. As much as I made the joke about the low-carbon tent, I'm not really sure that's a great option for people. So we have major issues in housing as well, not just for newcomers, not just for people who already live here, but the Indigenous population. We've got seniors aging in place because there's a sheer lack of options for them to see, feel secure and get out of the four-bedroom homes. We see these ridiculous studies where they count how many bedrooms are free. It's just ludicrous use of stats. The entire high system's in crisis. I made this joke earlier. Basically, right now, it's like having a forest fire, and each one of the government levels is throwing a bucket of water on it. So I think part of the solution, back to my earlier point, is partnership with the private sector. What we've seen on the P3 side, on the social infrastructure, look, it's not perfect. It's not necessarily always ideal, but it gets stuff done. Not the city of Toronto's approach, which is either deliberately adversarial or playing stupid. I mean, with their made in Clownsville approach to inclusion rezoning, it's just ludicrous what they're trying to do. So if you look at, if a development has two towers, one tower goes condo, why can't the other tower go real affordable housing? How can the private sector help do that? How can we look at taking property taxes off these affordable homes? How can we start taking tax off stuff to help people out? How about we get free buildings by removing the property tax, give a DC break, and now we get affordable rental, but affordable rental a real human being can live in, not some theoretical person that makes $100,000 a year, which, which is great, but there's a lot of people that don't. And I think there's great examples of inclusionaries only that have worked in the world. They're a partnership. They're not a baseball bat to the knees. And the issue with politics is the focus is on the next election. Uh, systemic issues are bigger than a four-year cycle. They're bigger than party lines, bigger than fundamental beliefs. We need people to step up and make change happen, not play possum, shoot out a platitude policy, which helps no one. We got an election coming up in Ontario. We saw the first fire, which is the act coming out. We all know what's going to happen next. Each of the political parties are going to throw out a larger number of homes that are never actually going to get built, that they promised to get built, and then just keep naming a number bigger than the next guy, so it sounds like they're doing more for the housing. It's starting to get fixed a little bit. It's just going way too slow and the problem's way worse than they're trying to deal with. Interest rates are going to go up. The, the, the problems are just going to exacerbate in the future. On that topic, uh, just because the new Bill 109, More Homes for Everyone Act, was just released a couple of days ago on Wednesday, uh, Steve Clark said that effective January 1st, 2023, the government will commit to providing comments within 45 days to any applications for housing developments across all ministries. I'm just curious, how do you think this will impact new supply or better yet, will it even impact housing supply? The problem with the approvals tends to be at the municipal level and are those as actions in the act, reductions in the fees they can receive if they don't respond in time. We saw, I think it was in one of the newspapers recently, one of the councillors complaining in the city of Toronto specifically saying, look, we've not even given you our opinion on the project and you're already taking us to LPAT. Yeah, because you took so long to give an opinion. And I think that is the challenge, it's time. And we did see a commitment for the Keys to Keys, I think I've got that name right, in Toronto as well, where they're going to try and hire more planners. And we've had this discussion with developers, and I think this would apply across the whole of Canada. If a developer was told, you give me an extra $100,000 on a project and I'll dedicate a planner to your project, we'll get it through, in a, and we'll get it through in a year's time quicker than normal or two years, I think most developers on a decent-sized project are going to jump at that. And then, that again, it's that partnership. Why the hell do we have to drop off a set of hard copy of drawings? 
I mean, we're in 2022 here. This isn't the 1960s anymore. Like, it's time to move up. Everything should be electronic. We should all be in Revit. The world should be moving forward, not arguing about trying to justify why we're doing stuff the way we used to do it. It's time to move up into the new world. And that's what's going to make a fundamental difference. And again, supply is not the only solution here. There's a bunch of other challenges we have in general um, with poor housing, quality of housing stock, areas that need improvement, and you know the ability for people to actually access decent paying jobs. It's, it's a massive, hugely interconnected problem, but we just deal with whatever sounds good in the election. And the new bill, it's nice. It's heading in the right direction, but it's not enough. So we'll have to see where things go in the future, depending who gets elected in Ontario. And as much as we seem to be talking about Toronto, this is a Canada-wide issue. I'm willing to guarantee if you spoke to someone in Halifax, Vancouver, Montreal, Calgary, they would all tell you there's a lot of people who find housing unaffordable right now. This isn't a made-in-Toronto issue. It just happens to be really, really nasty here. That doesn't mean it's it's any better anywhere else relative because it's all relative. It's a perfect segue for the next question, which uh, I know Ray will be able to speak to this quite a bit. And Marlon, please add anything. Uh, but what does the future of the housing market look like in the primary centers like Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal uh, compared to the secondary or tertiary markets if things continue as is? Well, just um, adding on to Marlon's comments, a lot of the housing policy and affordability issues, I agree that there's mostly Vancouver and Toronto. When you look at the 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 condo prices, it's you know it's three hundred forty thousand in Edmonton, three hundred seventy thousand in Montreal, and Calgary is about half a million. So if if you look at it, do you have to be in Toronto, and whether or not um, you, you, there, there could be a shift from the work from home and with with people working in in uh, other sort of secondary tertiary markets, which we have seen over the past. Um, uh, 24 months, especially with people that have uh, decided to sell their, their Toronto home and move out to Halifax or Kelowna or, or Calgary. Uh, again, uh, more space, um, more of a perhaps a balance and and still be able to earn um, good income uh, considering what, where the, the housing prices are. But the, the issue that we're running into is that these major markets were tough to tough on affordability but some of the shift that we're seeing in the secondary tertiary market especially outside of Toronto southwestern Ontario in markets like Belleville and and Kingston is that you have this this movement of some of the Toronto uh, owners that have um, have relocated into those markets and um, they've really moved up the, the housing prices so we had a big housing problem in Toronto now is being uh, exasperated in the in the secondary tertiary markets with um, with Toronto urban uh, buyers getting into those markets and pushing up prices for local people. So it was it, it was a bit of a challenge with the housing stock and affordability. But as as I think Abby, you you said earlier, prices have gone up by 30, 50% or 60% in some of these markets. So whether or not we're just expanding the problem on affordability, but again, there are still choices that, that people can make where they can live and what they can afford. But then there's that trade-off as well with respect to uprooting your family or moving away from, from your sort of larger family to be in an area that can have cheaper housing. So I think those are the issues that 
we're dealing with, um, but is, is no longer just a Toronto Vancouver issue that that this problem is being pushed right across Canada. Yeah, and I think as we see the push to hybrid hold, there's definitely been a chase for affordability. How long this lasts in the tertiary markets, that's probably the debate as the markets return. Um, I saw a stat somewhere, or I was at a conference, and someone mentioned that uh, Toronto, for example, had like 17,000 negative in terms of kids' population change over the past few years, which is just an indication of people, you know, families getting up. All they probably dream of is a small backyard and trying to find somewhere affordable to live with the kids. And I know rail deck parks sound fancy, but I suppose if you sat on billions of dollars, you got to do something with it. I think parents really would rather have a little bit of land, a small little garden. And we're seeing a lot of areas across Canada, Fraser Valley, Hamilton, Waterloo, Niagara, Barrie, Laval, places like that with very, very strong growth in either rental or condo. And it's it's a big push out. It's that chase of affordability and under hybrid, you no longer have to put up the hour, hour and a half commute. I live out in Milton, work in Toronto, I've got an hour and a half commute. Now I only go in one, two days a week. I kind of like it. So will that carry on? And I think Ray touched on Atlantic Canada. They had an amazing population growth last year. I think it was over 37,000. I mean... Basically, that was the expensive part of Canada going, ooh, look, Canada has a golden gem we've ignored for all these years. It's the Atlantic provinces, lower cost housing, amazing people, great scenery. And other than Vancouver, where else have you got in Canada? Crack open a Keeves, pour a glass of wine, fire up a joint, sit by, watch the ocean. I mean, the Atlantic's fantastic. But that's what we saw. That, but that then meant the people in the Atlantic now can't afford to live there themselves. And it's this is a Western problem you see in a lot of countries. I mean, I'm obviously with the accent from the UK. We've seen this in places like Wales. We've seen this in places like Cornwall, where the locals just can't live there anymore. we got to watch. We don't make the same mistake here. We have to push out to chase housing affordability. There's the people that are the genuine local people don't get pushed out, that it's fair and everybody has an opportunity. Yeah, and, and Marlon, I, I've always been a big fan of Atlantica and, and Halifax with the balance of of um, housing, the universities, as well as um, that commercial component. But what the other thing we're seeing, and because right now we do have a shortage of workers, and especially on the on the tech side, and to provide people with um, flexibility and employers a flexibility to hire in Atlanta, Canada, where you know some of their employees have already moved to, it just widens that um, that catch for um, qualified or educated or, or skilled employees. So in one sense, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a positive for the employers as well as the employees. But some of the other challenges we're, we're also dealing with is, is sort of that debate right now um, of um, some of the companies that want the employees to be back into the office. So this whole hybrid thing is going to shake out in the next, you know, probably 12 to 18 months. And what, what what's reasonable for people to, to, um, to be able to work um, outside of their, their market. And it, it'll be interesting whether or not if there's a shift, whether or not um, those people that have moved out, they can't afford to reverse the decision and move back into the Toronto, Vancouver. So I think we're going to see a big um, sort of uh, some of these questions answered probably in the 12, next 12 to 18 months to see where, where, where companies are, what type of policies they're going to have, how we're going to interact and how these markets are, 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 going, to, are going to position themselves. But the other thing that we're seeing, and Marlon, you mentioned Hamilton. Um, we, we saw that shift in the last 10, 15 years that uh, 
with um, with part of the population in, in, in Toronto moving to Hamilton. But now we're actually seeing the benefits with the growth of commercial and offices. People that do not want that one and a half uh, hour commute and setting up in either co-working space or some of that space in downtown Hamilton or, or is being retrofitted into uh, sort of that, uh, the brick and beam, that, that hip office space. So I think it's, those municipalities are starting to benefit from increased investments from companies as well as some startups. So I think this whole affordability thing, that it is a challenge, but it's opening up the doors for some possibilities and growth in the secondary and tertiary markets as well. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting and. <laughs> You know, I just said interesting, and that's something I tend to say a lot because a lot of uh, what Marlon and Ray always say is interesting. Uh, but it's it's it says a lot that you know there's this speculator tax. They keep increasing it. They've increased it now to twenty percent, and you know they keep we keep saying, and I agree that adding supply is is can solve part of the issue. But when you look at a market like New York where they continue to add supply, they continue to build high rises and prices continue to skyrocket. So it seems to me that there isn't a clear solution, but it's inevitable that more and more people are going to keep moving to Canada. It's a very desirable country. And we spoke about how so many people want to go to the major markets because that's where the businesses are. And I actually read an article, I believe it was Google, and they said that they're going to have a, a hybrid model for about five years, but then eventually they want everyone back in the office. So the question is, is hybrid a long-term solution? Is it short-term? Are people going to get stuck if they leave the city? I think that it creates a lot of psychological fear for home purchasers because they don't want to be too far from work because commutes are already long, traffic's already tough. Public transit isn't always ideal, depending where you're coming from. Sometimes the trains are better than the subways, but there are just so many challenges around it. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but hopefully at least if government... If the government and the municipalities make it a quicker process and provide approvals quicker and we keep increasing supply and we keep increasing affordability, affordable housing and purpose-built rental, hopefully we'll at least give people more options. I think a lot of people feel pressure to own, but it may be the situation where a lot of people are just going to have to rent forever and that might be the easier solution. I'm not sure. What are your thoughts around that? I think the problem when you start talking about um, do we have to own or do we just rent? And we saw a recent article in the US, that, or well, an interview that didn't go overly well for someone that implied that people don't want to own a home. And I think the uh, it's a bit of an inflammatory question, especially in Canada, because of the nature of the different provinces. But it's also not the same answer for each person, either geographically. Uh, Ray touched on it before with Quebec and Montreal, much more higher propensity towards rental. Um or those people actually genuinely don't want the hassle of mortgage or house ownership. We have someone that works for us. They just they don't want the hassle of owning a home. So uh, that shouldn't be judged. I think it's more around the second part of the question, which was, do people have a choice or the point that you're making? Do they have a choice? And I think that's starting to get removed with the affordability challenges. And it's not, should you have a right to own a home? I don't think everyone has a chance anymore. So having that less people are having the ability to choose their path to housing. So you have a right to a house over your head, reasonable level of comfort, probably in keeping and safety with where you live. But I don't know, do you have a right to ownership? I think that gets tricky. But to say someone doesn't have a right to ownership doesn't seem reasonable either, especially when I'm a homeowner. Why do I have a right to dictate you have to rent your entire life? So 
I mean, it's key to know ownership. It's really expensive. And as Ray said, it's not just ownership's expensive, rental's expensive. I mean, if you're in downtown Toronto, do I pay three and a half thousand, four thousand dollars a month for a condo, or do I pay 1.2 million for the same unit? And how the hell is one million or all of a sudden affordable? It's only affordable for people who bought houses 20 years ago, 10 years ago, like you said, Avi earlier, that have made a ton of money. So do we have to own? I don't think you have to own. I think if you'd like to own, it'd be nice that there's an option for you to try and get onto the market. And I think a lot of that is the Beam article that said a lot of people fear of missing out that capital accumulation in price. It does cause a lot of challenges in the market, and it touches back on the solutions. You start to look at some other countries where um, they have a much larger scale of plan when it comes to housing, like in a national level. They tend to have more stable house prices. That's where they've kind of covered it. It's planned ahead of the balance. The market's kept in balance. You can own a home. You can rent a home. There's a choice there. We don't have that because houses have been turned into commodities and they're all, everybody's promoting, oh, look, if I bought a house in December, how much is it worth today? And that's literally the scale. I remember when I first bought a house, I was happy if it went up in a year. Now people are literally like, oh, did my house go up this week? It's a mental problem we've generated with this fear of missing out, like you said. And I, I think that is part of the challenge. Unless we can get either a federal level plan or a reasonable provincial level plan that can return us back to some level of normalcy and expectation where we can get everybody sorted out. And again, we're talking about rent or own. Some people have no choice. They're always going to rent because it's the, the nature of their economic situation. So they should have the ability to rent good housing, good quality housing that's actually maintained, which then starts to talk to community housing, indigenous housing, where they just get left behind. How often do you hear how far each community area is down on their maintenance and stuff? So it's not just rent alone. Not everyone has a choice, in which case, what the hell are we doing for them? And I think that's the bigger problem. We're obsessed about certain things. And as much as it's sad that someone can't afford to two, can't get a $2 million home, you know what? There's a lot of people that can't even remotely ever consider talking about $2 million homes. So we have to think about them too. Yeah. Exactly. And sorry, Marlon, this, sorry. The, the, the other point is that when you talk about million dollar homes or 1.2 and you know, it, it going up um, slightly, it's the average square feet per these units are actually shrinking. So I, I think that the challenge is to keep at a certain price point, but you get less bang for the buck. And the, and the actual units for some of these condos are actually shrinking in the last few years, whereas um, prices have been increasing uh, exponentially. So you're, you're getting less and whether or not it's actually feasible to raise a family in um, you know, 400 or 500 square feet. The other thing you said on pricing we're tracking the market, um, you know, we're tracking all, all, all commercial, but when we look at residential land or land in general, we're finding that in similar to your your um, your your cost charts, Marlon, is that we're, we're having trouble tracking pricing, that even the numbers that we released at end of the year for average pricing in Durham region at 500 to 600,000 an acre, is now closer to about 800 to a million an acre. And that's a span of like um, six weeks. So it's a, it's a moving target. So when you're trying to figure out the, um, uh, the, the growth and whether or not you can build houses and whether or not the numbers work, you're having a moving target, not just on the cost side, but the cost to acquire sizable tracts of land. And that's becoming... Um, more of a problem, and, and uh, especially if you're looking in the urban area, which is basically nothing unless you redevelop or demolish a building, and it's even 
prices are really getting pushed out outside that 905 or outside that um, or more into the greater golden horseshoe. Yeah, and, and before someone suggests the solution is the government building housing, please don't go there. We've seen how they manage budgets. We've seen how they manage quality. Basically, if you think housing's expensive now, let the government build it, then see how expensive it can get. So it's not the solution. It's public-private partnership together. Yeah, and you know, I I am fortunate because I'm looking for we're looking for our second home. We luckily got into the condo market when it was far less, and we thought having a home in the city of Toronto were in a great position. We want a growing family. We want a bigger space. And it's quite crazy. I live on House Sigma. Like you said, I'm one of those people who's addicted to House Sigma. I look every day. And the houses in the city of Toronto and the areas that are around some decent schools, you're looking at two and a half to $3 million homes that don't even have a garage. Um, and then you start thinking, okay, what if we move to the suburbs? What if we move there? There's so many trade-offs. And I think it's also figuring out what are the most important things. And during the pandemic, it's really hard to prioritize what are the strongest points because again, you don't know if you're going to have that hybrid model, if you're going to have that flexibility, or if you're going to always have to go into the office. And I think that puts people in this gray zone of, of, of being unsure. And I think what ends up happening is so many more people want to be in the city out of that fear. But hopefully if we do get some more flexible work models, it will start motivating people to start going to the other areas so that, well, the market's I think that's don't the go challenge. Crazy. When we talk about housing affordability, it tends to be a made in urban area, predominant massive challenge. Like Toronto, you're talking about two, $3 million homes. There's a lot of provinces where you wouldn't remotely pay that for the average house. It's much lower, but it's all relative because the earning potential tends to be lower in those areas as well. And I think that's where we have to be careful when we do these things. We often sound like, oh, look, it's the guys in Toronto. Yeah, the million dollar homes. Those people where houses are still $150,000, that's relatively expensive when you live in that area typically. So it's it's a relativeness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also the challenge when you go chasing affordable areas, which was my point about the Atlantic, is if too many people with too much money come in, they start to distort the local market and they don't make it a fair market anymore. And that's kind of raised point on the speculation of land sometimes. The prices just get bumped up. There's just not enough supply. And it's that same challenge. If there was hundreds of sites available for industrial land, industrial land prices would drop because anyone could buy it anywhere. And I think that's the problem. And I I think I've said this in a previous podcast. Someone said to me in a conference, we don't have a land supply issue in Canada. We have an approvals challenge. And that tends to be where the the, the thing is. But we do have to remember that not the whole of Canada is the same. Every every town and village has not got a million-dollar housing problem. It's the made in absolutely. Vancouver, made in Toronto, made in Montreal are the predominant areas where things are just absolutely insane. And then everywhere else, it's just degrees of nuts. 100%. So I have another question for younger people that are getting nervous, seeing the markets, seeing the market go up so much. And some people have some savings. What would you recommend for them? I know sometimes a lot of people invest in pre-construction because they don't need to put down as much and they're able to wait a few years and rent during that time. It's not an option for everyone, but for those that it is, do you think a pre-construction investment makes more sense than purchasing a resale home or purchasing in the city? What would you do? You have a 15-year-old daughter. If in a couple of years you were to push her in a direction, what would you... This is where all of us would need to put a big disclaimer on the screen saying we don't give uh, investment advice. We're not liable for investment advice. It's like one of my market presentations where it says, do not listen to me, please. But um, pre-construction condos is a different view. You're, you're basically buying something that's probably going to take three to four years. In theory, you're going to get capital accumulation. It allows you to get in the market 
with a down payment. You hope by the end of that you've got some capital accumulation, then you move in. So it's not a bad option. If you need to move immediately, uh, pre-construction condo isn't really an option. You're in the, the the resale market. And I think younger people, especially in the cities, are likely going to end up renting initially. Then they might get into a condo. Then they might step up to a house. Um, and I think that's going to be the natural progression. But to be honest, if I fast forward 10 years for my daughter, I don't know if she could afford anything. I mean, I live out in Milton. It used to be relatively affordable. Even this, even now, it's just absolutely insane how much a condo costs here. Never mind a townhome or a, a semi or a detached. You just get silly numbers. So I don't know if they're going to be able to afford a house right now. And I think that's that's probably even more scary. Is I honestly couldn't answer if they going to be able to buy. She might have no choice but to rent. The other thing, I don't know where she's going to go for university. Right now, she wants to go to McGill. Um, obviously, my um, mother-in-law is from Montreal, so she has the drawback to go to McGill. So at least Montreal is a little bit more affordable than here, maybe. That's that's a good, great school, great city. Well, yeah, just she's fluent uh, in French, so it helps. For, oh, that's, that's a huge advantage. What are your thoughts? And sorry, this is the last question, but what are your thoughts on laneway housing? I'm seeing a lot of people using their garages or using their backyards to build small laneway homes for their kids while they're either in university or while they're saving some money. Do you think laneway housing provides a bit of a solution or do you think that... For housing, I think in general, anything that adds to housing supply can't hurt. I can safely say I would not want to live in a laneway house with my parent or well, my dad be living in that main house. I want to live as far away as possible. Sorry that if you ever listen to this, but I don't want to live in the house. But I think laneway houses, the infills are looking at with these three or four story. I think that's a fantastic idea to add some relatively low cost. And I use the term again, it's all relative, but to add some relatively low cost density, probably fairly quickly. And again, if those laneways houses are rented, it still gives somebody a home to live in. And I suspect the laneway homes are going to be fairly nice. I've seen a number of companies online offering like complete solutions. They'll get you through entitlement. They'll do the drawings. They'll build for you. Those are great solutions if you don't want the hassle and you can find a good company. And again, it could either be rental income. You could build, it could be for an elder person, such as a parent or an in-law moving in in the future. Again, that idea of freeing up the housing system and I think there is fear, especially in older people, um, for them to move out of the house. And do I go and rent a condo? What if the owner throws me out? If I go into purposeful rental, will the rental rates keep going up? I don't want to go into seniors. I'm too young at 72 these days. It's It gives you another option where I got a house, I got a laneway house. My mother-in-law or my parents can move in. They can sell their house. That house is not on the market. It starts to generate supply and it starts to starts to generate interest in the market. So that was one of the things that was in the act. In Toronto, I saw I liked, and I think we're starting to see that evolve a little bit around the country. Obviously, it's more density-related areas where there's higher density, but I think that sort of stuff's going to be the way of the future, these smaller solutions with bigger ones around as well. You want to touch on that as well, Ray? Sorry, I've done all the talking. Uh, I was just going to add to your other comment for the other solution. I think the bottom line for for our kids or uh, young people that are looking for home, you got to be nice to your parents and your grandparents because you're going to need some help in getting these um, down payments in and to help with the finances, especially if you make that choice of uh, trying to live into, move into some of these urban areas. But you need some sort of um, um, assistance and uh, it's, it's, it's a challenge with even raising the down payment now based on the average prices. 
Yeah, you either need a lot of help or if you're not in that situation, you need to find a way to become a star on TikTok or social media and find other streams of income because, yeah, it's, it's a really tough market. I'm the youngest of four and I'm bitter because I remember my brother got his house in the annex for three, $400,000 10, 12 years ago. Now those houses are 2 million. You can't get into those markets. So people are really lucky that got into the market, like Marlon said, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it's going to just become increasingly difficult for younger folks. So just getting creative and being open to other markets and being open to renting for a while, those all seem like the inevitable options. Or but, move, uh, to, move to Houston or, 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 or Austin. Move to Houston. <laughs> You know, I keep seeing houses in Texas that are like castles, $300,000. I'm like... Yep. Much more reasonably priced in areas where the prices are growing very... Uh, where the population is growing very, very rapidly. Yeah, supply is keeping up. Big shock. House prices are fairly reasonable. And Texas is a really fantastic place to live as well. I think I'd take Atlantic Canada over it, but maybe Texas wouldn't be too bad. I don't like snakes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so this was a great discussion, and I always enjoy getting your insights and your feedback. And I asked you some personal questions that also just just helped me and helped guide me. Are there any additional thoughts, any other comments you guys want to make regarding the state of the market and the future of affordability, or any um, any thoughts in general? I I I think in general, the, the government's got to pull its finger out and start working at this. And I don't care what part you are. Uh, playing games with people's livelihoods is just not acceptable anymore. We need to come together and start doing this. This ridiculousness that goes on right now with everyone not trusting each other. And I don't know if they don't care or if it just comes across as they don't care, but it's about time someone fixed housing supply together, not with this suspicion that everybody's always up to something because the only person suffering is the person without a house or the person that's going to be in the low carbon ta- the low carbon tent in the future. And it's just, I find it a mess and I find it really sad when you look at the state of stuff and you look at the sad state that housing's in now and that it's just, it doesn't feel like it's getting better to me. And I find that very sad thing to say. And myself and Ray work every day in building new developments. We get we see really exciting, cool stuff and you see the fight to get these things built. You, you'd think someone's building like an abattoir next to someone's house or something. Like it, it, it's a condo. There's going to be people living in it. It's a purpose-built rental. It's community housing. Why is that bad? And I don't get why housing development is viewed as evil. The people living in there are just you and me. The people who rent a condo unit is just the same as you and me. They're just people who want somewhere to live. And I don't understand why there's so much animosity towards people wanting to have a house. Absolutely. Do you think that the speculator foreign tax of 20% will even make a difference? We spoke about how people who own homes, they're making so much money, they're just they're buying more and more, and it's continuing to create that huge gap. And so they keep increasing that tax, but do we think it's it's dissuading those foreign investors or those people with multiple homes? Or do you I, think they're still motivated to buy? Yeah, there's two ways to look at it. One on the foreign speculator tax. When it was originally brought in by the Liberal government at 15%, it made an impact. The change of 5%, not sure that'll have an impact. You have to remember foreign buyers, I think maybe real confirmed this a minute, it's something like 3% of the market in terms of Canada. It's not big. The second one in terms of people owning a second unit, it seems to be viewed as bad. But if that second unit is owned by someone, and that second unit is occupied by someone renting it, say a student, say a young person just starting off in the professional world in downtown Toronto, it's contributing to the overall market. 
why is that bad? Where would they live otherwise? The other thing is, is what if you bought that second unit and the intention is your kids, the family members going to live in there in the future? Does that still make you bad? Who else was buying that unit? And if someone's willing to rent the unit, if we then took the, I think Ray touched on this earlier, about 25% of all condo sales, uh, basically second units or invest units. So if we didn't build those and people didn't buy them, where are those people living if we don't build those homes? I never quite get all foreigners being evil, investors being evil. Oh my God, a family of three got together. You know, the multi-generationals get together to buy a unit to help themselves with retirement so they're not a burden on society. Those nasty, horrible people. And again, the student that can't afford to live somewhere, him and his friend moving and rent the place. Why is that bad? I just don't get it. But again, it's what people want to do. They paint everything to suit their own their own thought process. Maybe someone's going to say to me, I'm painting that to present my own thought process. I don't know. It just seems to be everyone wants to paint everyone as bad. And it's this, this rush to, you have to be on one side or the other. You see it in the US in the politics. It's come here now. Uh, I'm not going to get into whose fault I think it is here, but we're all being pushed apart rather than together. And quite frankly, it's just disgusting. What's your perspective, but on the other side, sorry, Ray, just a quick thought. And then I, I want to hear from you. I see that perspective, but I also think, you know, because there's such a small supply and so much demand, the more purchasers you have, the higher the prices go. And these owners are spiking up the rents. The rents are going up a lot each year. Understandably, their costs are going up, but by having fewer purchasers, it puts a bit of that downward pressure. It does give more rental options for sure, uh, but it does make it harder for the those young people that want to buy who are competing with those owners that already have real estate that are able to offer more money because they just have more money to leverage. But I think you can see it from both both perspectives. And I think it's fair you know, to want to purchase a property for your child or to have a second income property if you're looking to retire or whatnot. So I definitely see it from your perspective. Sorry, Ray, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to add that from an investor standpoint, I don't think it really slow. It, it may slow down a, a few of the investors, um, but if um, if you're buying a, a condo, even though with increasing prices, and yeah, and and, and the market dictates the rent, so you cannot you be looking for something to cover 100 percent of the mortgage and the operating costs. I mean, you may not get it, but if it covers at least 50 to 75 percent of the costs then that still works and that you're getting somebody else to help pay for, for that premise. Same thing with buying a home and having a, um, a basement apartment and augmenting the, the cost that way. So I, I, I think people are looking at different ways to increase or offset some of those, those costs. So I don't really see this sort of uh, bit of a, uh, any, uh, perhaps a flattening, but definitely not a slowdown in, um, in demand and and uh, the purchases by investors and as well as users or people that actually want to live in these premises. Yeah, fair points. Great points from both of you. And Ray, did you have any additional thoughts or did you cover most of what you were hoping to cover? No, it's 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 basically it's, it's going to be an ongoing issue. And again, we've been dealing with this for the last thirty years. And hopefully, Marlon's comments like we had that leadership and government and multiple levels of of government to cooperate and come up with an integrated strategy in, in partnership with the private sector. That's the only way sort of out of this because right now the, these 
ad hoc policies and decisions with the different levels without um, some semblance of coordination, or at least doesn't look like there's a lot of coordination, that is, we're still going to have a challenge with this for, for years to come. Yep, it's, it's, a, it's a tough reality, and uh, hopefully the government and hopefully some creative minds come together and think of some other solutions that start working, because we can't continue down this road for a long time. So we'll see what happens, but great discussion as always. You both uh, had so much to share, really good information, and I guess we'll put a disclaimer that some of this is our opinion. Some, and I know I shared some of my opinions. Marlon shared some of his. Ray shared some of his. Some of these are facts, so hopefully uh, our viewers can decipher between the two and can appreciate you know, the different types of perspectives we offer. But I thought it was a great discussion, and I appreciate both of you joining today. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for tuning in, and uh, we hope everything goes smooth in 2023 and for the second half of 2022 at least. Um, our next episode is going to be the new science's life and tenant, which, to be honest, I don't know much about, so I'll leave it for the experts to talk more about it the next episode. But definitely don't forget to tune in. And remember, we're on Spotify, Apple, all the major podcast platforms. So please feel free to save these, get these notifications. And if you do have any ideas or thoughts on future subjects or questions you'd like answered, uh, please send them to us. We do read those and it does help us provide uh, some of the content that you're looking for. Thanks again and have a great rest of the week.